11.56. Reaching into his shirt, Julian pulled out the stone that hung on the leather rope around his neck. Leaving it in its silver webbing, he laid it into his shaking hand. In the gray light, the crystal didn't sparkle or shimmer. Silent and cool, it lay in his open palm. Once, the stone had been in her hands. There was sun then, a sparkling mist of dreamlike bliss, the beginning, not the end. Or so he thought. Was this the end, or was it the beginning? The crystal oscillates a million times a second, the cook told him. A cook, a magician, a warlock, a wizard. And you oscillate with it. You are the oscillator. You are the chain reaction, the chemical ignition, the voltage soaring through your own life. Go, Julian. The time has come for you to act. There is no other time. Until the end of time. Running out of time. 1159. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favorite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Emma Harvey. Now, you've likely seen Paulina Simon's books lining the shelves of your local bookstore, and many of you may have even had the privilege of losing yourself in the pages of her sweeping historical fiction. Paulina is a master of all styles and genres, having written 14 novels, two non-fiction books, and two children's books. She is perhaps best known for her best-selling Tatiana and Alexander series, which has captured the hearts of readers around the world. Now she is back with a new set of books, the End of Forever trilogy, which so far includes The Tiger Catcher and The Beggar's Kingdom, to be joined by the third and final book, Inexpressible Island, this November. We are delighted to have Paulina with us today. Paulina, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast and welcome back to Australia. Thank you, Emma. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your show. How are you finding it here? What have you been up I to? I always, always love it here. Well, work from dawn to dusk, and then um, I'm out of Paulina by about um, 7.30 p.m., so right in the middle of my book events, and then I can't sleep past 4 a.m., so I'm, I won't go outside and I wander the streets, and then I uh, try to, but I can't sleep. So oh we're hoping maybe I'll get out of the jet lag soon. Oh, of course. <laughs> what are you doing on the streets of Sydney at Oh, just like, because it was just empty, just walking, looking at the stores, you know. Wandering around. Yeah. Spooky. And I imagine these warm Sydney winters are a little bit different to where you grew up because for 10 years you were living in a small fishing village in Leningrad. Is that correct? Well, I, yeah, I was living in Leningrad, which is actually a big city, but my and the fishing village was where I spent my summers, but still they were not warm. Right. And Sydney for me, um, it's unusual for me to come to Sydney when it's kind of cool. It's actually gorgeous here today and yesterday, but usually I come here during your warmer months. So the, the fact is, when I was packing, I just didn't know what to do. I, I, all I have is sandals and, and sundresses. T-shirts, oh, okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I was wondering, to take you back 
to Leningrad and to Russia mm -hmm. at that time. Do you have many memories still from back yeah. then? Yeah, I have a lot of a lot of a lot of memories, mostly good and you know maybe some not so good. But but yeah, as a as a kid, I remember leaving and I remember I certainly remember my summers in 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 uh, Shapilova, which is the, the the little village on the Gulf of Finland. And I remember my years with my mom when my dad was not with us uh, in our communal apartment. So I remember it. I remember it quite well. Was your dad work at a, like a workers camp? Yeah, he was like a, in the gulag. Yeah, so he was arrested in 1968 after uh, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. And uh, he and his friends used to meet and talk about all things you know, political, but clearly they were talking about things political sort of with the anti-government slant. And uh, the man right next door to that room was like an, a KGB informer. So in the end, they, they spied on them, listened to them, and then just arrested a whole bunch of them, my dad included. Uh, dobbed him in. Yeah. Goodness. And at the time, you were a very avid reader, even back then. Yeah, I was. I was always be. I I was an avid reader, which sounds really good now, but uh, really there was nothing else to do. I wasn't like, oh, Paulina, you could watch um, Breaking Bad on TV or Game of Thrones or Looney Tunes, uh, but uh, no, I'm gonna just read. No, it wasn't like that. It was that there was nothing else but reading. So that's what I did. Oh, fair enough. What <laughs> kind of books were you into? So. So I read, I mean, I guess between the time I was five and the time we left, I must have read um, all of Jules Verne, and I read Alexander Dumas, and I read Charles Dickens, and I read Victor Hugo. I read Les Miserables when I was um, eight years old. My father gave that <laughs> book to me. He said, can't just read good it, luck. whatever. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, yeah, but I never forgot that book, though. That's very advanced reading. Well, I didn't understand most of it. It was just words. <laughs> just <laughs> the all, page, yeah. all the adult stuff went completely by my head. I, I, but I, I knew what I knew. I knew what I loved. And I, I certainly got the adventure part. I got the intrigue. I got the uh, Paris stuff, the London stuff. Oh, I read some books about the American Prairie that I've never forgotten, or Jack London, like all that stuff with Alaska. Never forgot that. So did they did they put an image in your head of what you thought America was like? Well, only a little bit. I never read books about New York, okay? But so, but I did read books about the American Prairie, uh, and uh, yeah, and they certainly put uh, images in my head of what Paris was like and what London was like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when you were 10 years old, you and your family immigrated to the U.S.? Yeah. And With a little detour in, in Vienna mm. and in Rome. So we lived in Rome until right. we uh, uh, waiting for permission to enter the United States. And then when we finally got it, we then we, we came to the United States, yeah. And you've spoken a little bit about the culture shock, especially at such a young age. Yeah. Um, and you said that you'd always dreamt of being a writer but that when you came to America, the change of language and the loss of culture meant that you sort of stopped writing and stopped reading for a little while. Yeah, even. oh yeah, I, well, you know why? Because I discovered this amazing thing called American television. <laughs> who, who wants to read a book when you have Happy Days or One Day at a Time or Mod Squad? I lived on oh Bonanza God, yeah. and, you know, and an odd couple. That was like my whole life. And I know my, my Russian family was like, oh, you're, you're going to amount to nothing because all you're doing is watching TV. No, that was right. But that's I wanted to amount to nothing because all I wanted to, to, to do was be entertained. That was the thing. It was yeah. amazing. Um, and you've also said that 
that at times you felt like a bit of an outsider being yeah of course you can't help that because you really want to be just like the beautiful kids in the school you know wearing their beautiful Lees and Levi's and having their perfect hair and there you are you're like wearing bell bottoms when bell bottoms are out of style for three years you know you're wearing somebody else's hand-me-downs I don't think I ever had a new pair of jeans until I was 18 or 19 years old and I bought and paid for it myself and that's something I so I mean how so when you're that kid how fit in are you gonna feel you know you're just not gonna you know it's that, that wasn't great so then I made friends with like the Russian kids in the in the school but I didn't want to be friends with them I wanted to be friends with all the nice American kids in ninth grade I did have a really good year that year because I made friends with like the valedictorian and the salutatorian mm. of this of the class and oh and they were they were nice girls and so I raised my game up a little bit by by hanging out with them so that was that was cool nice yeah the social hierarchy of high school yeah ex yeah you remember Don't that miss well it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly um and i mean a lot of writers have said that their writing was born of being something of an introvert or something of mm -hmm. an outsider did you return to writing in that time or was it not until you were much older well so so i I wrote my first novel when I first learned how to read in English, and I wrote it in English when I was 12 years old, and it was 78 handwritten pages of um, of a of a uh, of a story that was a cross between uh, between the three works of art that I admired most, which was Star Trek, The Great Gatsby, and Rosemary's Baby. What a combo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but because I was 12, you know, and I knew so little about life, in it the girl gets pregnant, but she loses the boy. The boy dies in the war, and she grieves for him, and her grief stops her from having uh, 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 the baby or giving birth to the child for five years. That was my story. <laughs> she literally is pregnant for five years because she's grieving for the love of her life. Oh, know? my goodness. <laughs> well, so. I mean, even your novels now. They may not have the same absurdity, but they certainly possess the same kind of energy and drama and, and, and intensity. And angst, yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> right. Well, that's what I say. I say the original story was all about grief and love and angst. And then I'm like, well, that's a lot like my actual stories now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so little has changed other than the fact that I know a little bit more about human gestation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that kind of writing, that style of yours has been met with such a positive response over the years yeah. throughout your career I'm so lucky I'm yeah. so lucky that it has I mean you don't know when you're writing that it will be you hope that it will be because but it means something to you and this is also the only way you know how to write it's not like you can just say you know what I'm going to try something else something different like I wish I could do things in my writing that other writers can do that I can't so you're always a little bit envious of other people uh, when they can do stuff that you can't right but uh, but the only thing that I I, that I can do is I can sort of vividly describe emotion as if as if it is a, na a natural landscape, like the way other people may describe outdoor beauty or the way the lake looks or the way the sunset is. So I can't do that quite as well. All I do is describe how people feel, uh, and you kind of hope that that might carry over. And sometimes it does. Sometimes people uh, respond to that. 
yeah. which which I feel grateful for. Yeah, that's such a good description. Yeah, well, I had, I had when I first started writing, when I first was writing Tully and I had a girlfriend, she gave me invaluable advice when she found out that I was writing, you know, everybody's writing a novel, <laughs> right? And here I was, I was 27 years old, and I said, Penny, I'm, I'm writing a book. She, she says, Paulina, can you just do me a favor? Can you please not write the parts that I don't want to read? That's what it was. And, mm-hmm. and I said, well, I don't know what that is because it's different for everyone. But somehow, it, I intuitively, like I knew exactly what she meant, right? Because when you're reading a book, there's certain things you just want. You just want to see on the page. Mm. Uh, and you like a book better when it has those things. When it, when it tells you the things that you want to hear but doesn't tell you the things that you don't want to waste any time on. That's a good point. Yeah, and actually speaking of what readers want to hear, because you have such a loyal and dedicated fan base. I really do, especially here in Australia. They just, oh, hell yeah. They're just beautifully passionate. We love you. Oh, they're just beautifully, they're just like, my, they are amazing, amazing. And they also, they look at me, I can't even describe it to you. Like I could cry just thinking, they look at me as if they know me. They, and I, I said, why are you looking at me like this? I said, because I'm so close to you because of the books. Have you got any memorable fan moments? Oh, <laughs> too I many. have too many to count. So uh, a woman in New Zealand once got in, on her knees in front of me, like literally got onto her knees in front of the table at which I was signing and said, thank you for Tatiana and Alexander. This was early on. This must have been 2003, maybe. I was quite impressed with that. And then another woman in Poland brought me homemade moonshine. That was the greatest oh, gift. Nice. She <laughs> said, that this is for you, for writing these books. And that moonshine, I'm going to tell you. When I, I, I traveled with it, I had to drink all of it before I got into a plane from Warsaw to Gdansk. And by the time I got to Gdansk, 7 a.m., I was... I was really in my cups, let me just oh say. My God. I was I got up I said, I, I'm gonna have a signing. I don't know what I'm going to say, you know. But I had to drink all of that moonshine. It was incredible. It was like raspberry hooch, you know. Oh my goodness. Extraordinary. That's <laughs> From homegrown raspberries, you know. Delicious. Yeah. Um, and these readers of yours are particularly excited? Yeah, and so this is my first epic love story since the Bronze Horseman books. And I've been writing, of course, I've written well, two follow-ups to The Bronze Horseman. I've written, uh, you know, Lone Star and A Song in the Daylight and Road to Paradise. So there have been quite a few books uh, between between then and now. Uh, but Julian and Josephine's story is sort of an all-encompassing thing. And it is one of those stories where you've got a, a modern component and you've got a historical component and you've got the epic love component um, it's not a romance. I just don't want to fool anybody into thinking that it is what it is not because mm. it's not a, a romance, but it is very much a love story, a true story of what it means to love another human being and all the adventure and the suffering and the joy and the sorrow that comes with that. Mm. A love saga, maybe. Yeah, yeah. a love saga. <laughs> yeah, yes. certainly intense. Exactly. Uh, and now typically when we start reading a series... Part of the deal is that we have to hang out for the writer to finish the next book. Yes. And there's a waiting game. But that's not the case with this series because you've been rolling out three books or you are rolling out three books over the course of a single year. What was the motivation for that? Well, because we had them. I thought it would be cruel to make you (laughs) wait when we had the books. Usually the reason why you wait is because so... mm, 
you know, the author finishes one book and then you have to wait for them to finish the next one. And that, that was certainly the case with The Bronze Horseman, even though it was a different kind of a story. There, here, there's one continuing story that it has a beginning, it has, you know, nine parts. So you've got a, a beginning, middle, and end in The Tiger Catcher. You've got a beginning, middle, and end in A Beggar's Kingdom. And then you've got a beginning, middle, and end in Inexpressible Island. But all all of them together, all three books together, make one complete story. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings. You know, mm -hmm. if you read the first Lord of the Rings, it's not full. And certainly when you finish the second book, right, Two Towers, you're not done with that story. That's a little bit how Beggar's Kingdom is. When you finish Beggar's Kingdom, you're feeling like, oh my God, where's the rest of it? So it, it was a different thing. So that's why it took me five years to write them because I had to see what that story was and how big it was and where it, it took me and, and how it, it, it finished and what the middle was. And b because I did that, we had the books. Mm. And so we just decided to do this innovative you know, publishing thing. Yeah, this is the era of the Netflix binge. E well, exactly, so. right. Everybody wants their entertainment. They want it now. Want it now yeah. and, I, and I also think waiting a year, no, probably it's just hard. You then you're reading so many other books. It's mm. not in front of mind, right? The and then and you and you you lose the momentum exactly. Mm. You're because you're already on to the next thing, the next thing. Oh yeah, I remember that book. What actually happened in it? Well, I'm curious if you were reading, if you were if you were writing all three of them over the space of five years. Were you going back and forth? Were you writing chronologically? Or was no, it so I was writing chronologically. I mean, I had to finish, so I finished one one story, but then I would do bits and pieces of the next mm. just to see where the shape of it was. But they weren't filled out, so little by little they had to get filled out. And then as they got filled out, they got bigger and bigger and bigger because in order to make it real, it needs words on the page, you know? So if you're writing with all your senses, like you experience things very quickly when you, as you live your life, but to put it down on a page so that you can feel things and hear things and, and sense, smell things, you need to describe them, and to describe them takes words, and so, to, and so to make it real takes words. And I guess, so as I was trying to make it real for you, the, word, the words kept, kept getting coming. bigger and yeah. bigger, yeah, <laughs> and so the story was growing and growing and growing. Um, then it, there's like half a million words in these books now oh at the end God. of it. Yeah. I was thinking that even for a seasoned writer such as yourself, that's a lot of writing. And in yeah. not much time, actually. Five years uh, yeah, is a exactly. long. Exactly. It seems like a long time. But, but uh, well, I mean, for example, look at the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, Donna Tartt when she wrote Goldfinch. It took her eight years and it was one book and it was only like 290,000 words. I mean, it's still a, a long book. 290,000 words is a big book, but eight years for that you mm. know and here's uh sort of three books in the course of five years so that's pretty good right yeah that's really solid <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm wondering what your days looked like when you were in the throes real of long so i would i would uh, i don't know what i'm going to do now that my daughter is uh is leaving home and going to college but she really kept me on the straight and narrow because i would have to drive her to school which was like seven o'clock so i would be in my office at seven thirty in the morning and I would start my day then, and then the day would go on till probably 8 o'clock at night. I mean, all day, like 12 hours a day in one place, sitting, right. feeling like I was running a marathon. Because, you know, your body is just sore from, uh, from, from sitting. And yet, unless you sit and work, you really can't write, right? You, you can get up, you can pretend you're writing, but that's not the same. You mm. really need to be at, at the place where the words are reaching from your hands into the into the screen and the computer so yeah that's a long slog 
Yeah. Actually, speaking of your daughter, do you use your family ever as like as mini editors or as sort of? Yeah, my editors? husband. My husband is my my first port of call for all my all my stuff. He reads all my stuff first, and so. But think about that too. For me, he was the only one for many years who'd read any parts of the End of Forever books. No one else had oh. read them, so I had no feedback from anyone. Uh, it was only it was only him. Uh, at good first. Feedback? Yeah, I mean, he's been an editor for 30 years. So, oh, oh, right. Okay, he's <laughs> editor of science fiction books, but, and, or spy thrillers, and, and maybe some horror books. But, but he, he really knows his story. He knows narrative, he knows character, he knows what works. And he also loves my books, that helps, you know. So he's, mm. he's sort of on my side. He's not doing it to, uh, to hurt my work, he's doing it only to help my work. So all of his editorial comments, I, I mean, I get about. I get mad at him. Why are you saying that? But they're all, he's always right, almost always right. Oh, so. that's fantastic. So was writing this book different at all? Yeah, I mean, it was real hard. I mean, it was, I'm not, I'm, I think it was one of, the, one of the more challenging sort of periods of my life, both creatively and, uh, and practically, like in my actual life. And, and the reason for that is because, you know, I really needed... To, to finish the first book and we wanted to get it published but the story wasn't done and it felt like it wasn't done and so we just didn't know whether whether we should publish it or wait till the entire thing was done before we figured out what to do with it um, and so that struggle between how big it was growing and how big the story was and how much I still had to tell and between sort of the fact that we needed to get the books out there and published was a real was a I'm I'm not gonna deny it was a little stressful. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you know, you had to put all of that away. In the end, the only way that I could finally finish them is when I had to put all of that away and say that the story is the most important thing. And once I finish it, and once I tell it properly, the way it's meant to be told, then we can figure out what to do. And kind of that's exactly what we did. You know. Well, for many of your readers, these books contain these familiar themes of intense romance and adventure and turmoil, but it's also doing something a little new for yes. you. Could you talk us through this? Yeah, we can talk about that a little bit. I saw you, I, it's not even that I used that as a device. It was, you know, the thing came to me. So I had to, I had to go with it because this is what was offered to me. Um, and the thing that came to me is when I first saw this story, I saw Julian, I saw him hurtling through time and space, looking for the love of his life, finding her or failing to find her and being desperate and outraged. So I saw that sort of, I'm like, what is that? What is he doing? So I immediately saw this sense of that he, he, they had something together which he lost and which he has been intensely, desperately trying to regain and has been failing to regain it because he's not, he doesn't know what to do. That's what, it, that's what it felt like, like he just had no idea how to regain it. But clearly the way that he was trying to change the past was by going back into the past and by getting a second chance to remake his life and to remake her life and to, to, to give them both a second chance at, at being what they were meant to be for each other but he just didn't know what that path was, mm. you know? And so because of that, so I, so 
So that's why, that's how the element of this time travel came to me. It was that he was already doing it, and I saw him doing it. So it wasn't like I said, oh, what are, what are my readers going to think? Because that's a new thing for me. That's a new new element for me. But I just, I just thought it was just a little bit of magical realism. And what I did is I grounded it in science. Mm. And so that it was kind of real because I wanted him to be a skeptic as we were skeptics and for him to overcome it and then us to overcome Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. I didn't want it to be like an I Dream of Genie thing where he just sort of twists around on his <laughs> you know heels and clicks his shoes three times and and says a, a like a, a chant and then he's there i wanted it to be a struggle a journey uh, a, a, a struggle both of faith so a metaphysical struggle but also an actual physical journey that he had to undertake to get to the other side and that's what he does um, I'll, you know, actually, one of the examples that I liked from my childhood was the Wizard of Oz books. Because if you remember in The Wizard mm -hmm. of Oz, Dorothy does not get from Kansas to the land of Oz by magic. I mean, there's a little bit of magic, but what she does is she has a journey. And in every one of the books, uh, there's a new journey. She gets to land of Oz a different way every time. She doesn't, she doesn't go the same way, mm. but there's always a a, a path that she needs to undertake to you know to get there and I, I kind of like that yeah well and so do you feel like you were bringing your any of your reluctant readers who maybe were really tied to your romance novels and your historical fiction and bringing them into the story through the similarly reluctant Julian <laughs> Well, exactly. I was hoping, that that's exactly what I was, I was hoping that they would, those who might say, wait, what is happening? That am I, okay, now I understand. Most of my readers, though, are like with me, you know, mm. they're like, they're the open, to, yeah, they're open to anything. But of course, some are going to be like, oh, wait, what is this, this time travel? But people say that about, uh, you know, about, about anything. One time somebody picked up red leaves and said, I threw that book in the garbage after I finished reading it because it was in a romance section. I thought it was going to be a love story. This <laughs> is the worst love story I've ever read. I'm like, all right, so it was miscategorized. That's not my mm. fault. <laughs> so that's interesting. Where would you place this book um, in a bookstore? So I guess it would be like, reg I, I would just place it under regular fiction. Mm. I would, because it's not quite sci-fi, you know, no. it's not, and it's not quite fantasy, though it does clearly have a fairy tale, you know, elements of it. But I would say that most of it is just a contemporary and a historical drama that has this extra element of something that seems very real when you're living through it. So yeah. I've made it sort of like a very real life thing. Yeah, absolutely. The magic and the mysticism folds unfolds very naturally. It's almost it doesn't take you by surprise in any way. It sort of just no, feels a part the, of the story. Right, and exactly and you sort of he's very skeptical himself. He doesn't think it's going to happen. Mm. And the gentleman who offers it to him says to him, all right, well, you don't have to believe me. Either I'm right or you're right. So, And then he has to ask himself, well, what does he want? Does he want it to be true? Or does he want it to be not true? And then he realizes that all he wants is for this magical thing that he's being offered to be true. Mm. And once that happens, then he's embarking on this you know, a journey on this adventure from which there's no way out. There's just no way out. And uh, and that's the struggle for him in, in Beggar's Kingdom. Once he realizes that he just is still trying to do this thing for which there is no roadmap. 
for our listeners, we've been talking about the main character and the narrator, uh, Julian, and Tiger Catcher, the first book, begins from his perspective yes. in Hollywood and he's leading a fairly comfortable life. That is until Josephine, the other half of this love story, comes along. I wonder if you could introduce our listeners to Josephine, the mysterious... Yes. Well, the the, ma- the magic for me, that's really the first bit of magic in Julian's life. It, it's, not, it's not the cave and it's not the time travel. It's that in his regular, comfortable, sort of slightly, you know, uh, um, hooded lid life, suddenly this thing came in front of him that woke him up. That was the first bit of magic. And where did it happen? On stage. So it was the stage that gave him the first miracle uh, because the stage is sort of where all life begins. Uh, think about how the stage features so prominently in our, in our Western culture, in our Western literature, right, in our Western civilization. So she's up on the stage in front of him and he's looking up at her and suddenly he just sees her being something else for him that was so he falls in love first with an image of this girl he doesn't she doesn't even look like a girl remember she's playing a man the first time yes the first time she sees him so it's not like oh she's so beautiful and he sees it no he sees something remarkable in her soul that she's giving to him through her theatrical performance so it's art that changes the man and that was mm-hmm. why I introduced it that way. That's why it was so meaningful to me, because that was my whole point. Is that is that is that it was it was specifically that it was the stage and the theater and art, because the stage is like life. You know, it's the stage is where all things begin and end. Are you a bit of a theater lover? I'm a I'm a I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a literature I guess lover. I just the yeah the stage the theater the pl- the plays there's something marvelous that happens between actors because it's all told through dialogue right you know and that's a, the, the miracle about books is that you get to know inside of a man's soul you don't just have the dialogue you don't just have the conflict between people but you have this other thing which is. I know how Julian feels. I know how he feels about her. Like he is very much in love with her and she's a beautiful, friendly, open-hearted, warm, funny girl and they they fall in love. There's no question that since we're seeing it from his point of view that this is how it is. Now, clearly his friends are a little bit they have some reservations. They're a little bit cooler, let's say, towards him. But I, we've seen that in everybody's life. You love some, you fall in love with somebody, and your friends are like, he's terrible for you. <laughs> They're always like, oh, he's completely wrong for you. He's not the right one. And so the friends are all saying, hey, no, she's not the right one for you. There's something not right with her. But he, he doesn't think so. And certainly the image that she presents to him is one of unfailing affection and warmth and kindness and humor she's a wonderful beautiful appealing sexy girl it's like i saw her from julian's point of view and he was completely enamored um you know with her yeah well you mentioned the friends of julian's and even thinking back to the play um for our listeners the opening scene where we meet josephine for the first time is when Juliet is with his partner and they're on, are they on a triple date or a double date? They're on a double date. So he's with his best friend, Mm -hmm. Ashton, and Ashton has a girlfriend and Julian has a girlfriend. So the four of them are seeing it together. And what's amazing is that only Julian has this 
very strong positive reaction to her, the rest of them, it's almost like they have a premonition of what's to come. Mm. They have a negative reaction to her. They don't like her performance. They criticize her. You know, the girls all feel like they're being petty, but it's not the pettiness. It's that they saw something clearly that they did not react to positively. It was an omen. It was like an omen, exactly. That their reaction to it was also a premonition, as his was, but uh, of a different kind. I mean, look, I don't blame them because she was stepping in as the understudy for Nicole Kidman. (laughs) (laughs) A little nod to our Aussie readers, to your Aussie readers, which is great. Um, But yeah, I wanted to say that that I think the characters, especially the side characters, bring a lot of light and humour mm-hmm. to this tumultuous yeah. affair. Um, what's it like, that you know, a- jumping or switching between the drama and the comedy? Well, that to me was life. I wanted to make it humorous too. And you see, even in Beggar's Kingdom, though, it's a much more serious story. There's so much comedy there. Mm. There's just so much. And, and the same thing here. I, the when you live your life generally, even during the toughest of times, people still somehow manage to make jokes, right? Sometimes it's gallows humor, sometimes it's, you know, a little bit dark humor, but there's always a sense of of, um, of humor in your life. I think it's almost unnatural when you have a story where there is no humor, even when terrible things are happening. Um, and so certainly the friends do bring do bring a little bit of it's comedy fun. and they amuse and also but also the comedy is the is the is the tool that I use to show that there's a good relationship there that Ashton and Julian are the best of friends mm. the closest of buddies for a long time and that Julian has a good relationship with Ashton's girlfriend and that he tries to be a good guy to even his girlfriend that he's had because he's met someone new but he's still trying to do right by by the girl that he's with. He doesn't want to just lead her on or pretend that something hasn't happened. He wants to end one thing and begin another. And, you know, I I, I sort of wanted to show him in a certain light mm. by doing these things. Yeah, definitely. They're good buddies. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm curious then, what can readers expect from the third installment, Inexpressible oh. Island? How much can you reveal, Paulina? Inexpressible Island. Is it inexpressible? It's inexpressible. <laughs> it is one of my. I I can't even. I'm gonna I'm gonna cry just thinking about it. It is one of, it's one of the things that I've I've written again. I know I know I keep asking everyone just to like to trust me and to stay with me and to read these stories, but I mean, A Beggar's Kingdom is tragic and full of sorrow and like joy and there is like I say humor, but there's, I mean. It's a dark book because it's the middle book. Um, there's so much that happens in it, and there's so much that's revealed to us about Josephine, and so much that's revealed to us about Ashton and about Riley and and about Julian and Devi and all these people that we've come to know through the Tiger Catcher. But when you get to an expressible, that's when you really, that's when the whole thing just really comes down to you, and you you kind of see, you kind of see what it is. But only then you see what it is. But all the pieces are going to fall into place. Like all the things that you think, all the threads that I'm keeping, you say, well, is that ever going to be paid off? Everything will be paid off. All the questions will be answered. Everything. And there you go. We've got that to look forward to. It's very exciting, very mysterious. Those are full of tremendous love and passion and war and all, and friendship. Everything. 
Mm. Every single thing there is, it's a Pandora's box in Expressible mm. Island. <laughs> and so we are called Good Reading Magazine, so I couldn't let you leave today without talking a little bit about reading. Yes. And I wonder then um, what your favourite authors are. I know it's a big question. And favourite books. Who inspires you? Who well, influences you? I have so many, so many people. And so as a young child, you know, I already, we spoke a little bit about the people who, whom I loved and who inspired me. Uh, and now in my, in my grown-up life, I tend to read a lot of nonfiction and memoirs and biographies uh, because my work, it's hard for me when I'm writing to read fiction um, because I don't want to be too influenced but also mm-hmm. it's not even about that it's also about getting into other people's stories you know when you when you um, when you're deep inside your own story then to read another people uh, uh, somebody else's story the worst thing that can happen is if it's really great because it's going to take you out of your yeah. story and you're going to be in their world and their life and their characters so I, I force myself not to do it because fiction is like my first love you know and I don't do it but I also love biographies so I read a lot of I all this I'm the girl for celebrity memoirs you know there's a celebrity <laughs> memoir out there that, but I do love I love John Irving I love John Steinbeck all the Johns you know I uh, yeah, yeah I love Brett Easton Ellis uh, I love Jane uh, Jay McInerney like I love I love all the, the you know the the modern guys who wrote about sort of contemporary angst um, I love Steve Martin he's a wonderful writer he writes he writes beautiful beautiful books I love David Sedaris I think he's amazing. Uh, Nora Ephron is one of my favorite writers. I can read Nora Ephron and uh, she, all her essays, her books, her novels, everything that she writes is just is just amazing. The nonfiction stuff that Joan Didion wrote was very beautiful. I love Dominic Dunn. Like I just read uh, all his stuff. I I was a very big uh, O.J. follower, so all the books on the O.J. Simpson trial. But my favorite was Dominic Dunn's uh, uh, book about about the, the the trial when he lived there. So, you know, so they inspire me. They always see their w- oh Stephen King. You know, I loved him too, uh, especially his early stuff. Um, she was compulsively readable. Mm. That's hard to find. Michael Crichton is very smart. He has he, uh, Michael Crichton has that, that thing that I love, where he's got a lot of um, uh, scientific and yet a very good uh, story, strong story narrative, you know, in his in his books. But it, they're all based in medicine and science and mm. technology. It's very interesting to me. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Paulina, was there anything else that you wanted to go over? before we wrap no, up No, yeah, a beautiful, beautiful interview, Emma. And I just I just wanted to... Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm very happy. I guess the only thing I wanted to say is, look, I, I, I know, I know how my readers feel about Tatiana and Alexander. I know it because they tell me. Mm. I know it because I felt it myself when I read the books and also when I wrote my screenplay for the books. When I go back into the books, when I listen to them on audio... I understand. I I'm the first one who felt it. I had to feel it first before my readers could feel it. But I guess I would like to see if there was a way that we could all move on because otherwise it's almost like I I'm never going to be able to write again yeah. because everything that I do it always gets compared mm. to that and which I don't I don't mind if if um 
but except that it's always gets compared, I guess, in that way where it's not as good or it's not as great or I'm never going to love anything as much mm. as I love that. And so it, it, it becomes like a double-edged sword. On the yeah. one hand, on the one hand, I love that they love Tatiana and Alexander because I love them too and I love them mm. still. That's never going to go away. But on the other hand, I want us kind of all to move forward. And for me like a lone star for me it was just a beautiful book to write and it was just heartbreaking and i and i loved writing that book and again it had new characters had a new love story um and but these books particularly because they're so epic and there are three of them i really feel stronger about these books than i felt about any book since the bronze horseman and i guess that's one of the things that i would like the readers to know is how i myself feel about julian and josephine and i really am very sort of passionately emotional about them yeah so it's a big compliment and kind of a curse at the same time to be well i always say it's a burden and a it's a great burden and a great privilege just to write mm. to write books for a living and i'm so lucky that i have this thing which people have responded to you know i'm not going to i'm i'm begrudge. not gonna i'm not gonna begrudge that exactly that's a it's a beautiful thing that's that's a life thing for me so well yeah this seems like yeah. it's the perfect trilogy for people to sort of latch on to and maybe yes. move on with yes yes with, it, with new characters and then mm. in the new world with and a new love story but still powerful and epic and emotional and heartbreaking so well paulina thank you so much thank you for so much me. emma um, really enjoyed that. You can Thank find you. The Tiger Catcher on the Good Reading Magazine bookstore or at any good bookshop. Paulina, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Emma. It was Cheers. a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mm.